Today on the Untoxicated Podcast, Sherry, I want to start out with a topic that's right on point. I want to talk about guns firing bullets up into the air. What? Yeah. You, you know, you see that on movies sometimes, like old cowboy movies when they celebrate. Woo, boo, 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 oh, boo, yeah. Just everybody's firing up in the air. I'll never forget in high school in physics class when my physics teacher taught us that the bullets that are shot straight up in the air come down at the exact same velocity that they go up. So, if you shoot a bullet straight up above your head, um, it's going to come down on your head at bullet speed. No bueno. Mm. So, I always think of that. I always think of that physics teacher when I hear the term, what goes up must come down. Oh, I was wondering where we were going to Yeah. Go it was with a, this. kind of a long lead in. No, it wasn't that long. So, what goes up must come down. You know what we have learned in our work, in our recovery and working with other people? We have learned that what goes down must come up also. That, that too is true. Hmm. What goes down must come up. And what I mean by that is the progression into alcoholism. You know, the, we, we all know that addiction is a progressive disease. And if it's bad today, it'll only be worse tomorrow until we seek help and, and treatment and start reversing the trend. But if we drink a lot, now, you know, a few months from now, we're not going to drink less. We're going to drink more or it's going to be harder to control because of the progression of the disease. So that, to me, that's the downslide. Mm-hmm. Everything is going down. And we want it to come back up the other side, don't we? We don't want to end in the pit at the bottom. And the progression into alcoholism, it's always the same. From from our experience, it's always the same for the drinker and it's also always the same story for the loved one of the drinker who is just equally tormented by the disease as the innocent bystander or the you know the the victim on the side however you want to say that and so i i want to talk about that a little bit because so many people that we talk to that listen to this podcast that we work with they they think that they are unique and that they are, you know, one of one battling this situation. And it's a real relief when they realize, holy cow, there's other people on the exact same boat. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to say there's millions of other people on the exact same boat. It, this isn't, this is one of the world's best kept secrets, high functioning addiction, because not only are there other people suffering, but there's so many other people suffering. And somehow... We think it's a unique situation over and over and over again. So let's start with the start. Let's start with how alcoholism starts. You know, it, I, I think it starts, for most people, really innocently. It starts with experimentation, often for, for in our case and in others. It starts with experimentation in high school, and that continues into college, and in my case, and in lots of cases, the drinking gets a lot heavier in college when there's no parental units around to to monitor, you know, our behavior and check it and tuck us in at night and make sure that we uh, come home at a decent hour, things like that. Mm-hmm. And what really 
bolsters our impulse to drink when we're in that environment, that college or that early 20s environment, is that there's so many people around us that are behaving the exact same way. So something that might have seemed cautionary to us or, or alarming to us if we were isolated or if we still lived at home or <laughs> just lived with different humans, when we are surrounded by humans that are behaving the exact same way, it's, it, we don't even give a second thought to things like drinking until we pass out, drinking until we black out. I can remember in college when I started drinking to blackout, and and we would laugh. Ha ha ha! You don't even remember what you did last night. Ha ha! No, I don't. And it, because it wasn't always me. Some nights it was me. Some nights it was my roommate. Some nights it was the guys down the hall. Uh, it was just like a rotating, you know, circle of who's going to drink themselves to oblivion. We were all trying. We were all going down the same road. Just some people it hit harder or they went further on a given night because it was happening. Frequently to so many people, we didn't think twice about it. Was that your experience in, in high school and college? Were you surrounded by it to the point where it wasn't alarming? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I, I know I had some friends that didn't um, participate quite as heavily or used a little more caution and discretion. And then I had friends that went like totally like way deeper into... Um, partying than I did, but I definitely think that you kind of surround yourself with people um, that are like-minded. Sure. <clears throat> and similar if, behaviors. If, you know, and similar behaviors, so then you don't feel like an oddball. I mean, and also, what would you do, like, you know, with the people that weren't partying the way you were doing, and you're partying, you know, it wouldn't, you wouldn't drive, so you just didn't hang out. Yeah. You wouldn't seek those people out. Yeah. You've made the point that when we were first together and, and when I had my first real job out of college, I, I have said everyone in that company drank and you've made the point that, no, there were people that didn't. Matt, you just didn't even give them the time of day. Like, you didn't even acknowledge yeah. their existence. Because... Or drink and party in the way that you enjoyed. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it starts innocently enough. Is that the place where we should put our efforts when it comes to prevention, alcoholism prevention, not recovery, but prevention, uh, ab- absolutely. I mean, so many people who don't fall victim to alcoholism look at their their just bohemian years in early 20s in college with just such reverence and fond memories that there's not any kind of groundswell to change the way people behave in college. You know, professionals who are successful and have... Solid families look back and think, oh, man, I remember when I used to drink till I puked or drink till I passed out. And they don't think of that in a negative way. So there's not a lot of uh, will out there in society to change those years. And in, in my humble opinion, that's where a lot of attention needs to be directed because we need to understand when we're that age the, the damage that we're doing and also the path that we are starting on and if we want to reduce the 15 million alcoholics in the United States that we estimate exist kind of perpetually, I don't think there's any better place to start than where the super destructive binge drinking and acceptance of that starts. Well, let's move on from that, but stay on the societal factors. When you know we grow further into adulthood, 
And like in my case, it, drinking is every night. Drinking is more so on the weekends. Drinking is part of every celebration, every vacation, every dinner at a restaurant. There is this societal belief about what an alcoholic looks like. And, you know, we use this phrase all the time. You picture the the bum sleeping in the gutter that doesn't have two pennies to his name and is just begging for enough money to go buy his next bottle of vodka. And that's what we think an alcoholic is. And that, again, is a huge societal problem because we don't understand that addiction starts way, 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 way before you've lost everything and you're sleeping in the gutter. It, and so the trap is set because, you know, we walk down a path that we don't think is dangerous. I've talked about this lots of times. I, I can remember distinctly the public service announcements where Nancy Reagan, when I was a kid, was saying, say no to drugs. And I had this pretty solid belief in my head that, you know, heroin or cocaine or LSD was big when we were in high school. That those were the things that get you in trouble both legally and they can wreck your life. And I wasn't going there. But nobody told me to fear booze. Booze was tied to <laughs> success and manliness and masculinity and, and relaxation and vacation and all the things that we think of as goals to aspire to. As long as you did it legally. You know, like there was a mad campaigns and, you know, wait till you're 21 or whatever. But definitely they didn't... It was like, it was a drug that was perpetuated as just a lot less harmless. I mean, yes, you could kill somebody or yourself. Or a lot less harmful than, you know, kill somebody if you're drinking and driving. I know that was, um, you know, one of the things in college that we kind of, like, made sure that there was somebody that was the DD. Or, you know, took a cab or something. So that was one thing in my friend group that we all kind of made sure we had. In high school, not so much. Usually there was one person that kind of hung out with us that... Stayed back and made sure people got home. A really good point. Way to give props to the Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, because you're right. That did have an impact. We did have this kind of mindset of definitely trying not to drink and drive. Did it happen? 100%. Oh, yeah. But we best laid plans, tried to take a cab or have a designated driver or be within walking distance Mm -hmm. or, or call somebody we knew hadn't been with us to come and get us, that kind of a thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But but as long as you had that ride, it was... Yeah, and it still just... is. I mean, look at the advertisements today. Mm-hmm. When we talk about drink responsibly, it isn't like, oh, only have two drinks. It's like, make sure you have a safe way home. Mm-hmm. And, and guys, don't accidentally rape somebody mm-hmm. because you get so drunk. Like, there is no, um, you know, amount over which you're not supposed to drink if all the in in the right settings a, a holiday or a really festive situation yep so so the societal factors are certainly masking what alcoholism looks like as long as you're not sleeping in the gutter you're fine then in a relationship in a marriage like ours the progression is such that the denials start and I, you know I can say confidently, looking back on all of the times that I lied to you, that I never thought I was lying to you. All the times that I denied 
I never did it to hurt you. I never did it on purpose. I, I can't explain it much further than that. I don't know if that is, you know, I'm denying it from myself. So if I ignore it, I'll, I hope it'll go away. But when I would say, oh, I haven't had much to drink, it wasn't like I was secretly like, he, 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 I've had eight drinks and she'll never know. Ha, 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 I'm so sneaky. It wasn't like that. It was, if I say it out loud, maybe it's true. <coughs> you know, we've talked about, I've ne- I never flat out lied to you and said I haven't been drinking when I had been drinking. And right. I know that's the case for a lot of people that they hear their their loved ones say, I have not been drinking and the truth is they have been. But I often said, oh, you know, I barely had anything when really I, I had had quite a bit more. And so those denials, you know, you start to get away with that. You start to convince yourself that denying and, and shading the truth is acceptable. And then that, that turns into as the relationship starts to really struggle and arguments become more frequent and... When your spouse starts to say, hey, I think you're drinking too much. You might want to look at your drinking. Then the knee-jerk reaction to that, that is, again, this is a universalism. I, I don't know of any relationship where this doesn't happen to at least some extent. We as the alcoholic or the, the alcoholic that doesn't know they're an alcoholic starts to blame the spouse and turn it on you. Oh, this is, this is your fault. You, I, I used to say, Sherry, you have a drinking problem because you don't drink enough and you don't recognize that drinking is an acceptable societal behavior and drinking is everywhere and everyone else is having fun. Why don't you loosen up and have fun? Tell us what that felt like because you had a partying past. It wasn't like you were unfamiliar with what it felt like to get drunk. What was it like for you when I started to deny it and and even more put the blame on you like you're the one with the problem when you had experienced both sides, you had experienced being a drunken buffoon, but you had also experienced being a mature adult. Um, I think that uh, it really pissed me off when you would say things like, oh, well, you're the one that has the issue. You're trying to blame your dad's alcoholism on me, and you'd throw that up in my face or you know, would often say, you know, your mom's just turned you against drinking. And I would be like, what the hell? You saw me in college. I was partying like with harder stuff than you were. I mean, I had more experience in other chemicals than and you kind of steered away from anything but alcohol. So, I was like, you you know me. You know what I used to do. It's just growing up and you realize you don't carry on like this. So, I would get really really pissed and I never I never believed that because I knew what I could see. So that's one thing that I never believed. I I believed that maybe I did have a problem in accepting the way you thought drinking a cocktail or two or maybe three or whatever after work every night was okay. I guess I didn't think that. And, you know, I guess maybe the only thing I doubted was maybe if he was drinking just one or two normal, like, you know, not just straight gin and a splash of tonic cocktails every night, I might think that that was kind of acceptable because I saw other people do it, other adults do it, and it didn't become a problem for them. But I never, I never, I never got on the bandwagon that I was the one with the drinking problem. And when you would say, you know, I just need to loosen up, I was like, loosen up, somebody's got to be responsible here. Like, 
you know, somebody's got to be the one that's making sure you're not acting like an idiot, getting in trouble, saying the wrong thing, knowing when to get home, when to be home for the babysitters, etc. So it was like hurtful gaslighting, but you never really bought into it. Yeah, I never bought into that piece of it. But it's still, it, I mean, it had to be, it had to be painful to hear your husband say you're the one with the problem, whether you agreed with it or not. Yeah, it was painful. It it, it wasn't. I think more it just. It was just more ammunition that made me, and more proof that made me realize that you were the one that had the issues. And and so it wasn't painful. Like, I didn't get hurt by that. I just got mad. And I thought, what an idiot he is. He's so fucking dumb. How can he say that? <laughs> How did you really feel, Sherry? Because <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to believe that I have a problem. He has a problem. And he's just trying to pass it off on to me. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. I'm glad that you were strong enough to to not fall for that gaslighting. There was other gaslighting that that messed with your mind, but yeah. that piece of it, I'm glad that you <clears throat> you were you were you didn't you didn't cave on that. So well, and that came that that came a lot like later into after we had already had a lot of issues. Yeah, with it, because um, I think that early on when you were drinking heavily before we had kids, you weren't really paying attention to how much I drank. Yeah. You were solely focused on That's you. Fair. And as long as I didn't create problems or, you know, kill your buzz or interrupt your partying, before you, were, we had you kids, were fine. Before we had kids, I had friends. Like, I did happy hours more and, yeah. like, work friends. And so, or you're right, I, I didn't pay that much attention to how much you were drinking because I had other people around me that were drinking like me to justify my drinking. Once we had kids, it didn't slow down my drinking. Right. But it did slow, slow down my going out. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a good father. I genuinely wanted to be a good father, so I would just get shit-faced at home. <laughs> <laughs> really, really mature. <laughs> so the progression continues. We're still going down in our what goes down must come up. I love this Robin Williams quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I didn't take the time to look it up exactly, but he says that you know you're an alcoholic when your behavior deteriorates faster than your ability to lower your own standards. I love that because it's a little bit of a thinker, like a lot of things that Robin Williams said are. But basically, you know, you say you're never going to, you're never going to, what's an example? Drink in the morning. Drink in the morning. And then, yeah, you know, mimosas on Christmas and there's a tailgate before the football game. And, oh, you let those slide, and then eventually... Or a little hair of the dog. Yeah, I woke up, and it's Monday morning, and I just feel like crap, and if I just had one drink before work, I'd be better. And all of a sudden, you know, your behavior is getting worse faster than your ability to say, these are my new rules, this is now acceptable. That is a sure sign of alcoholism when you start doing the things you say that you never would do. And... Again, that's that's also pretty much a universalism. I can't think of a case uh, of someone who's, you know, fallen into this trap of high functioning alcoholism that hasn't lowered their behavior and and had to have their standards catch up as they spiral downward. Then you know we we can't see that our medication is the problem, and what I mean by that this is the diabolicalness of high-functioning alcoholism, we have stress from work because we have these busy, you know, hard, stressful jobs and we have family stress as well. 
and we are drinking to relax. So when we come home after work or on the weekends, that that alcohol is a stress reliever. And then the stress gets worse and the depression slides in too and there's anxiety. But you know what? When I'm anxious, the only thing that'll curb that anxiety is a little bit of a drink. So so I'll have some alcohol and man, I'm I'm depressed, but I associate alcohol with happiness and, and all the joy I had younger in my life when I drank. So I'm going to drink to to get me out of this funk of depression. And so really we're medicating. We're using alcohol uh, medicinally. And what we don't understand for a long time, well, a long time in my case, maybe some people are quicker on the uptake than I am, but we don't understand that the alcohol is also causing all these problems. The alcohol is either causing the depression and anxiety or it's at least making it 10 times worse if, if you're someone who had anxiety and depression going in. For me, it was the cause of my depression and anxiety. And when the alcohol was gone and I gave myself a year plus to heal, I gave myself a lot of time to heal, the depression and anxiety was gone with the alcohol. But at the time, you just don't see it. So the cycle just keeps getting worse. I'm anxious more often, I'm stressed more often, I'm depressed more often, so I therefore drink more often. And it's literally, you know, the cliche of pouring fuel on the fire. That's exactly what it is. Sherry, I want to ask you a question. As we as we reach the pit, the bottom of the progression into alcoholism, I've done a lot of describing and we've talked a lot about what it's like for the alcoholic to take that trip down, that progression I want to hear from you, what's the decline like from your perspective, from the wife of an alcoholic? Um, talk about what you saw in me, how you felt about me, how did, how did my just love affair with alcohol and ignorance to what it was doing, how did that impact you? Um, I think a love affair is a good way to describe it because I often felt, you know, second fiddle and felt like... You chose alcohol any point over any of us in the family, no matter how many kids we had at that point. Um, so I definitely felt like let down and unloved, unappreciated. Um, caused a lot of arguments, so there was a lot of anger. Um, anger that you weren't listening to me or you weren't being respectful or you weren't seeing the problem or you weren't doing the things that um, you needed to be doing as far as just being a good partner after the kids went to bed or whatever. Um, and and watching you turn into somebody that I couldn't rely on. I didn't know which way you were going to go when you were drinking, whether you were going to be like solemn and subdued or happy and joyful or and then it would like quickly turn into frustrated like we mentioned earlier how you said I had the drinking problem like if I didn't want to hang out with you and watch whatever or or drink with you there would be like that could be a trigger for a com uh, an argument um that's a really important point when when I was drinking my mood swings were like these huge peaks and valleys. And in sobriety, in long-term sobriety, you still have mood swings. I still am up some days and down some days, but it's it's minor and subtle. And 
like I don't feel like if I'm in a bad mood, I'm crushing your soul. Whereas when I was drinking, I, you know, if if I was just somber and sad and moping around, I'm sure that was no fun to be around. But then if that turned to anger, then I was wrecking your existence as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, again, the, the emotions don't go away. In fact, it's it's hard. One of the challenges of early sobriety is learning how to manage them, learning how to manage emotions without just drinking past them. But they're not nearly as wild and swingy as they used to be. Right. And I think that for me, um, you know, I don't know if it was like the codependence personality part, like kicking in, but when you would have those like mood swings, it would also make me have mood swings. Sure. So then my body just got used and my brain just got used to like going up and down and everything being so dramatic or, you know, it was like either really high up or really high down. And um, so that that anxiety started to build in me. That's the word I was wondering about. A lot of people describe that as, you know, walking on eggshells around their partner because they don't know what kind of mood that person's going to be in. Yeah. But that's got to just put you, your nerves on end, right? You, right, and then it'd make me afraid to talk to you about things even when you weren't drinking. Sure. like, Or, you know, even when we would be in our business together, bringing up stuff, I'm like, God, how's he going to react to that? Or or am I going to hear about it later once he has time to think about it and remembers after he's had some drinks? Like, it was just, um, you know, and then it, like, it pissed me off that, like, you were turning into this person that I didn't want to be around. Yeah. And that other people didn't want to be around. Um, most of, you know, I think like in front of our friends, you were very jovial and funny and hilarious, but sometimes around our families, like when we would go on vacation and there would be a couple days of drinking, you could turn into a real asshole and, um, really show yourself. And so like those people didn't want to be around you and it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing embarrassing. to be married to someone like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure it was. Yeah. You made a good point earlier, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to just circle back to it quickly. You talked about how you were second fiddle when I was progressing down into addiction. And so that, you know, made your progression into your your battle with my addiction difficult as well. One of the examples I think of when you talk about, you know, you being in second place to the alcohol, whenever we would go to a restaurant, even just for a family lunch, I would always insist that it was a restaurant with a with a liquor license so I could have a beer or two or three with lunch. And you know, at the time, I, I you would you would indicate that that was frustrating to you that I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't go to this little mom and pop deli because I knew they didn't serve beer. Right. I wanted to go to you know, a place with a liquor license. And I always thought that the reason that that frustrated you was because you were worried that I was going to get sloppy drunk sitting there at lunch. And so to me, I, I would just blow you off and be like, I'm only going to have two, maybe three. I'm not going to get crazy. So her, her worries are silly and I don't need to concern myself with them. But now looking back, I realize it wasn't that so much as it was another opportunity for me to choose a place with a liquor license over someplace you might have wanted to go. So again, just like glaring in your face that I'm choosing the alcohol over you. Is that the way that that felt for you? Yeah. I mean, and a lot of the, you know, when the kids were younger and we would go out, like a lot of those places didn't, you know, that were family friendly, didn't really sell it. And also, you know, here we were worried about finances and income, but 
you know. So, oh, it's amazing so, how much more expensive lunch is when there's alcohol involved. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and then those places usually have higher-end food. And, of course, then the kids would, like, you know, or they would just be more expensive places, right? Because the... And it would be more likely that I'd be like, why don't the kids get an ice cream cone after this So then we could have another beer. So I have one more drink. Exactly. So then I would just hear the cash register sound like, you know, ka-ching, 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 like adding up. And also like... And then I can yell at you later if you want to buy a new bucket because the handle broke off the existing one. Yeah. And then there would be like past nap times because there would be, oh, we're having such a great time and I'm managing the kids and you think it's cute and... So it was like you were definitely choosing the beer over us. And yeah. then, gee, what would happen when you came home? Well, you had a really good buzz on and you were kind of a little tired. So then that would just start the day of drinking a lot earlier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to the point, like, I remember sometimes, like, it would be like, you would, if it was summer and you would sit on the back porch in the sun and drink some beers and then you'd be passed out for dinner by dinner. You know, and have to wake you up. So while my high-functioning alcoholism is progressing, your reaction to my alcoholism, your codependency or your, just your, um, the damage that was going to be inflicted on you by my disease was progressing as well. You talked about anxiety. You talked about being chosen second over the alcohol, the, the responsibility of the family weighing more heavily on you because I was less responsible, the financial burden because you saw the money being wasted. So all of these things are adding up and causing stress and just pain, emotional pain for you. I want to ask one more question about your progression into my alcoholism. And I have good news for you, Sherry. I'm not going to ask about sex. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. But I do want to ask about attraction because... I didn't know at the time at all. I still thought I was your knight in shining armor as I was smelled like sour beer and was getting, you know, fatter and more disgusting and slobbery and all of that. And I I now realize that I was not. Talk a little bit about how, you know, I think you've said that you you always loved me down deep. You always had hope and believed that the person that you first married was still in there somewhere. But masking that hope and that that down deep love, you were becoming more and more uh, unattracted to me. I was uh, turning you off for alcohol. I mean, you, you had no interest in drinking because you saw what I was doing. But I just was like unreliable, not the person that you wanted to confide in talk about talk about that a little bit i mean when you looked at me it was kind of, i'm just going on and on aren't i <laughs> well you're kind of Is talking for me <laughs> yeah. good point, good point. <laughs> but I, but did you think i was gross <laughs> yes yes um like even going way back to like when you would be really really drunk like when we were in college and I would see you sit at the end of the bar eating these like stuffed breadsticks. I'd be like, you were so gross. How can I even be attracted to you? And then, then you'd be sober the next day and you'd be funny and witty and, and charming and quick, clever, you know, and good work ethic. And we had fun. a lot of compliments for me on this podcast. Oh, thanks. Um, it's getting big. But then, um, but then, you know, then the drinking started and you know, all like you were saying, like, especially when it was really, really bad. I just, 
you know, I preferred to be alone because you preferred to, like, sit in the family room and drink and watch whatever it was you wanted to watch. And I preferred to be separated from you. And so I kind of got used to being alone because I thought, oh, God, like, you know, where where is a conversation going to go with him? Yeah. What's going to happen? Because a conversation could be turning into him getting on his soapbox about politics for hours or how he, you know, and sometimes your um, ego got in the way. Like you would think like you had all the answers that you if, you, if you were doing that job, you would do it right. You would do it better. So just listening to that sort of building up of yourself, um, you know, like that was a big turnoff or um, just some of the things that, you would like try to break attention away from your drinking and how you would dive into, oh, it's everything else. It's all these other things in our relationship that are an issue and it's not the drinking. And so that could, you know, that was a real challenge to to my self-esteem or the way I'd been operating the house. So, you know, and just like seeing someone that, like smelled and and it's like when you gained weight like I I've known you for a long time and your weight has fluctuated so it was never like a I'm a like the physical, Oprah <laughs> yeah you're, you're like the male Oprah like your hair being shorter your hair being long or hair being thick or thin <laughs> it's not gonna get thick again I gotta tell you um but like your weight like I know that we've we personally on the side have talked about like the physical appearance of you like that was never it like. That was never like a turnoff. And in early sobriety, <laughs> for a long time, I thought that was it. I yeah. thought, oh, if only I can, I don't know, lose some weight or yeah. get a better haircut. Maybe That so. was never it for me. Yeah. It's always been an emotional attraction, like, and the connection. Like, I know we joke that they're, like, actors and directors that will hire these really great, gorgeous women to be in their... Movies, and then they have people like Kevin James and Adam Sandler that are their husbands, and you're always like, "How does that happen?" And I'm like, "Because maybe they have a really nice personality and they're a really good person, and that's who you're attracted to." Or in those specific cases, it could be the money. Money, yeah. So, but that's how it was for me. And trying to convince you of that in early sobriety has been really hard. It's never been, unless you know. I'm sure that if you started pissing yourself or something, then that would be a really big you know unattractive unattractive thing I'm sure which way you're going with that yeah <laughs> Stop it. so I, I never was concerned about your physical appearance it was always about the way you treated me the way you treated your the kids and the way you treated yourself too so we're in the pit we're at the bottom and you know for me rock bottom wasn't a horrible car accident thank god it wasn't a dui it wasn't anything outward it was internal it was the demise of our relationship and debilitating depression for me. So we're in the pit and I just want to highlight some of the things you've talked about. You know, you were taking second place to alcohol. There was lots of denials and gaslighting where I'm trying to convince you that you're wrong and you don't aren't seeing the things that you're seeing. I am and and I think this is perhaps a topic for an entire podcast episode. The two general moods that we have when we're in the pit of alcoholism and and this is not just when we're drinking this is when we're drinking or when we're sober either we're an egomaniac and I'm, I'm using the word we because I think this is a relatively universal thing 
among many alcoholics as well, many that I know of anyway. Either we are an egomaniac and we think we could, we'd be a better president than the president we have and we could solve this problem if only someone would ask us for our opinion. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or we're a puddle of sadness depressed about any number of things. Yeah. So when it comes to attractiveness, you know, you got this guy that's lying to you, putting you in second place, uh, is trying to convince you that all the problems in the relationship are yours. And then acting like he can fix, you know, these things that he knows nothing about or crying on your shoulder because he's so sad and pathetic. I mean, what's there to be attracted to? Exactly. I don't think, I mean, you make a good case for it doesn't matter what you look like at that point, ugly or pretty. It's how can that factor? And you've got all these other unattractive attributes. Yeah. That are, you know, pointing in the wrong direction. Yeah. That self-loathing, self-pity. So for you, you never, I, words, I'm going to put words in your mouth again. I'm speaking for you all the time today, but I don't think you ever hated me. I think that's a pretty strong word. <coughs> there was mm. a flicker of love still there. You kind of hated me. I kind of hated you. Okay. I think that there were times that like during terrible arguments that if you were just to combust right there in front of me, <laughs> I probably wouldn't <laughs> care. Well, I don't know. I'm laughing because there were times when I it was at the height or the pits of my depression when if I had combusted right in front of you, I would have been pretty happy about it too. Yeah. But maybe, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe hate isn't, um, isn't the right word, but, but pretty I close definitely to wanted, right next door to I, hate. Yeah. Like I just wanted you gone out of my life a lot of times when it would be really bad. All right. So where do we go from here? What goes down must come up. Hopefully if we're going to salvage this thing. Recovery for the drinker, I would propose, is different case by case, drinker by drinker, person by person. And that, again, I've used the word diabolical already once on this podcast episode. I'm going to use it again. That's part of the diabolical nature of addiction. There is no silver bullet. There's no, if you just do this, if you just do these 12 steps, you'll be fine. That works for some people. It's a horrible mismatch for other people. Other people... You know, for me, bibliotherapy, learning about neurotransmitters, learning about addiction, nutrition, all of these more scientific things, I guess. Or just education. Well, and but the bibliotherapy, the, the reading memoirs of alcoholics that came before me, that was a place I got my connection. There are these authors that I feel like they are my brothers and sisters, and I love them from the depths of my heart, and they have no idea who I am and never will know who I am. <laughs> So that's kind of a weird way to describe connection. But for me, that was connection. I felt I would read their books over and over. And when I've read somebody's book 10 times, I feel like they're part of my family, you know. Uh-huh. But so that worked for me. And I, I've talked to so many people that I've, I've suggested, hey, here was my path. Why don't you try this? And for some people, it's a great fit. And for other people, it just does nothing for them. And I have lots of friends in AA that find that to be a, a great fellowship and a great, the 12 steps to be a, a great mode to work. For me, I don't even understand how that would work because I don't think of addiction. I think of addiction as a brain disease, not a spiritual problem. So that's what makes recovery. While we said the progression downward is the same time after time for the alcoholic and for the spouse of the alcoholic, the coming out of the hole for the alcoholic is different. Um, just talking about relapses. There are some people for whom relapse is a part of recovery. You hear that phrase a lot. 
but e- even the kinds of relapses are different. For me, I relapsed a bunch. For 10 whole years, I relapsed. So I'm not bragging about not relapsing, but my relapses were the kind where I would just be still sad and depressed and in pain and anxious in sobriety. And I would make a conscious decision that I was going to try to drink again. And I was going to put different rules around my drinking. And I was going to try harder. And I was going to do it this time. So my relapses were well thought out. Mm -hmm. And I talked to you before I drank every time. You Mm -hmm. didn't like catch me drunk. I would. Mm. Oh, really? Yes. What? There was a couple times. Like in front of friends. Well, I still talked to you before. It no, was just moments one time, before. Yeah, like a second. I'm going to give in. Glug. Like, there were a couple <laughs> times where you did that. Yeah, that's not a lot of... Yeah. But that's not... Boring. But I'm sure in your mind, you had been, you know, thinking about it. On oh, yeah. Up to, it's all I thought about. Yeah. It's all I thought about. But so there's that kind of planned, premeditated relapse. And then there's the relapse that other people have when they just, you know, they, they are in the parking lot of the liquor store taking a sip off a bottle of vodka and they don't even know how they got to the liquor store which that has to do with blood sugar and the subconscious mind there's lots of stuff behind that but there's these momentary unexpected trigger kind of relapses and and you know the word slip gets used a lot to describe those kind of relapses where they just drink for one night and then they're back on the sobriety bandwagon which is it's great that they get back on the bandwagon um, it's just a different kind of relapse. When I relapsed, I relapsed for another six months to two years before I was going to try sobriety again. It wasn't just a momentary thing. So there, that's a perfect example. We don't even relapse the same, we alcoholics. They're, everything's different. You, you've got people who do AA. You've got people who just try to white-knuckle it through. You have people who do things like what I tried. There's all kinds of... I had somebody on the phone last night that called it New Age you know, recovery methods. Uh, Tempest, Laura McCowan stuff, uh, the um, one year no beer people, mm-hmm. Annie Grace's alcohol experiment. There's all kinds of new stuff out there to help people get sober. Do you know why there's so many different, so much variety in methods? Because staying sober is hard, and if one program doesn't work, something. Yeah, because it's yeah, not. You gotta try something else, right? Because it's not one size fits all. Yeah. If there was one mousetrap that could catch all the mice, there'd be a lot more sober people. But it's <laughs> great to more, see... Or a lot less mice. Or a lot less mice. It's great to see all the uh, all the different modes out there. I really, truly, firmly believe that. But it's also a little bit sad and a little bit of an indication that we still haven't really figured it out. And I think the reason we haven't figured it out is because there is no such thing as a silver bullet. When it comes to recovering, as the drinker, the path is long and winding and treacherous and different for everybody. Now, I would argue that when it comes to the recovery of the loved one, people in your shoes, Sherry, there is a lot more consistency. It is it is more like the progression down into the pit in that it's the same story every time with a few details rearranged. I think the need for, you know, the, the Al-Anon, the most famous of the Al-Anon terms, detachment, and setting boundaries. I think that's fairly universal. And it's really important for the loved ones of alcoholics to recognize that you're detaching from the alcohol, not the person. You're setting boundaries around the alcohol, not the person. Mm-hmm. You can still love that person. You can still honor and respect that person. But draw lines in the sand that are not to be crossed around 
<laughs> alcohol, not the alcoholic. Right. Does that make sense for yeah, you, Yeah, like, like, I probably understood but didn't understand. Like, if I were to hear those words, boundaries and detachment, because I would feel very guilty, like I was putting boundaries on you, Matt, not drunk Matt. So, you know, had What's I... What's an example of a boundary for you? Like, um... You know, just like when you were, you know, four beers in or something, I'd be like, a boundary would have been like, you just sleep in the family room. Yeah. You know, don't come up, don't disturb my sleep, don't... Pass out on that chair and we'll both be happy about it. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't do this because I need my sleep and I need to be able to function the next day and I, you know, I need to not have worry. Now, having that enforced, I think, is would be very hard because... You, you're dealing with somebody who's under the influence of a, uh, you know, a substance that's not going to make them always think right. about what's going on or, or how aggressive they could be of not wanting to sleep in the family room chair passed out in front of the TV. So I always thought that those sort of things meant separating yourself from the person yeah. in all fashions. Well, and that's because you didn't have any al You didn't right. have anyone to... To teach you this stuff. Primarily, the number one reason you didn't have Alan on or anything like that was because I would have gone through the roof mm-hmm. if you had indicated to anyone that I had a drinking problem, even strangers in a in a meeting that, you know, didn't know either of us. Right. That still would have really, really, really upset me. So I so you worked into this whole topic of boundaries and detachment. You know, trial and error and slowly over time. Because, I mean, there were times I can remember early on when you would try to get me roused into bed if I had passed out somewhere in the, you know, in the family room or whatever. But then later, as it got worse and more obvious that, you know, I was on a bad road going somewhere bad. Um, how's that for a writer using those descriptive <laughs> words like bad twice in the same sentence? It's pretty good, huh? Yeah. Oh, no, I used good. But I remember once when. I was just trashed and I passed out in the car on the way home and you let me sleep in the car and I vomited on myself. It was horrible. I've written about it. It was disgusting. It was nasty, but you were done at that point. You weren't going to come wake me up and try to drag my puked on carcass into the house. You were going to let me sit in there and stew in it. Yeah. So even though you didn't know the term boundary and you didn't know what detachment was because you hadn't been in a setting or read about about those terms you were doing it did it how did it feel like you you know the night i'm talking about when you left me sleeping in the car mm-hmm. I, I mean i know you were angry right so anger is probably the predominant emotion mm-hmm. but did you feel did it feel like you were doing something for yourself by leaving me out there i guess in a way yeah i thought oh well you know i'm at least gonna get a few hours sleep before he wakes up and i know he's just gonna be a bigger pain in the butt trying to get the kids in to bed um because i had had experience with that before um like you waking up from being passed out for a bit and being like oh i gotta be the dad and i gotta be trying to help her get ready and it would have just been in my way Mm -hmm. um also i i feel like it did something for the kids like you know they just thought you came in and went downstairs to the family room um they didn't realize i was they didn't realize you were still in the car because they had kind of dozed the littler ones had dozed off so 
you know, that's what I kind of just said was, oh, he's probably in the family room downstairs. Um, so then it kind of eased their mind because, you know, they didn't know what to expect because the older ones definitely knew that you were, had a varying degree of personality. So I felt like it was for them too. So. Yeah. Even when you didn't understand detachment, you started to employ it toward the end. I could, I could see it and it started to scare me, honestly, when, you know, anger kind of changed for you right toward the end. For a lot of our relationship, when you would get angry with me, either because I was poking on you, I was being a jerk in, in a drunken stupor, um, or, or you were just angry with my behavior in general. For a lot of the relationship, you would argue with me about that. Mm-hmm. And we would fight all night and stay up all night in these vicious, you know, whisper screaming at each other so we wouldn't wake up the kids' fights. But toward the end, you started to get kind of, I don't know, maybe ambivalence the word. But I could tell you were disgusted, but you you didn't engage as much. Mm-hmm. And again, you didn't go to Al-Anon, so I don't feel like someone had whispered in your ear, this is the way you need to act. But just naturally, you eventually got to that over time. And so that's that's the first thing that really scared me. Like, oh, she doesn't even care much about me anymore. That's, not, that's not, what not she's mad at me. She doesn't give a rip. Yeah, that's what it was. Like, I feel like, you know, when I had reached out to family members, mainly our parents... Or my sister, you know, it was like, well, just don't don't say anything back when he says something stupid. And then, like, I still cared. I still felt like I needed to defend my side or or try to make my point. or So I, I did care. And, and caring led to arguments because then I would argue back or disagree or correct you and you weren't going for that. But you're right. At the end, I was like, I don't care what he does. Just stay away as much as possible. Shut up, you know, Matt. No one wants to hear you. Stay away. Yeah. That cold shoulder had a really wonderful long-term impact on me. At the time, it was terrifying, and I didn't like it. But now, I'm thankful for it because it was part of the wake-up call for me to to recognize that this wasn't going to be sustainable long-term. So, I'm thankful for it. So, detaching... You know, often you hear that term said, detaching with love, uh, creating boundaries. That is a big part of early recovery for the spouse. And in in the situations with which we have familiarity, that's kind of universal. It's kind of got to happen. And again, detaching from the alcohol, not the alcoholic. A lot of people that we know, they set their boundaries around, hey, no alcohol in the house, no alcohol in your body, and everything will be fine. But if either of those two things happen, I'm out. I'm going to bed in a different room, or you're going to bed in a different room, or you're leaving the house. Um, so I think a lot of people that have gotten some training and some some good advice and read about it or attended Al-Anon are better equipped to detach from the alcohol and not the alcoholic than than you necessarily were. And but But again... Because of my stance, you had to do it by trial and error and figure it out for yourself. And I'm very proud of you for how you did figure it out. It must have been really reassuring as you've learned about this stuff, you know, more recently as you've learned about detachment and boundaries to to realize, oh, you know, I was doing that at least partially right. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I feel like your body just kind of kicks in and kind of um, makes it so, because you just kind of naturally get to that point of like, you know. Instincts. Yeah, detaching. I mean, unfortunately, I think like you would detach from the alcoholic behavior and not the person. But I feel like because I had let so many arguments happen in the past um, and there was just a lot of resentments that build up. That I did sort of detach from you because I was just done. Yeah. So it wasn't that I was done with the alcohol. I was just kind of thinking because I thought you were the alcohol sure. too. So that was the difference there was I didn't understand to blame the alcohol. I knew the alcohol was the driver, but I thought, you know, you were the person that you were when you were drinking and I was just done with you. Both on the side of the drinker and of the loved one learning to blame the alcohol and not the alcoholic is is really it's important because it's right but it's also important because it's kind of cathartic it's kind of you you don't have to feel bad about the choice of the person that you connected your life to you can say oh that person's still a good person he's just not here right now because the alcohol has hijacked him Mm -hmm. and so there's i think that helps with the loved one too you don't have to beat yourself up about god why did i pick this awful person yeah and once the alcohol's gone there's a chance to for redemption. But you used the word a minute ago, resentments. I think, again, this is another thing that's universal among the loved ones of alcoholics. There are tons of built-up resentments over the years because of the behavior of the alcoholic and and also because of your counter-behavior, right? I mean, when you would engage and then the fights would get nasty, you'd be resentful. We'd both be resentful about that. And so, again, something that's universal among the people that are healing on the, the side of the person who loves an alcoholic is the need to work through the resentments. And we've talked a lot about that, but I just I don't think it can be overemphasized how important it is. And this isn't about apologies. In, in some cases, it starts with apologies. And some I mean, we we know of cases that just, you know, boggle my mind where the alcoholic is in recovery and still hasn't apologized for their behavior. I just, I can't imagine that. But in most cases, they have apologized, but the apology isn't enough. They need to sit and understand what going through that behavior, that that terrible night, that terrible day, that terrible week, what that was like for you, for the yous, Sherry, right? Mm-hmm. And and carry some of the weight of the pain from that experience. And that's the only way to deal with the resentments. Just saying, I'm sorry, there, let's not ever talk about that again. That works great for the alcoholic, or we think it does, but that doesn't do anything to repair the relationship, and it's detrimental to the the recovery or the discovery, the pr- progress of the loved one. So that must have been difficult until... You and I worked on the resentments, but then somewhat relieving when we started to to go down. Did would you feel would you feel a sense of relief if we talked about a particularly terrible incident from my drinking past, and rather than me just say I'm sorry and walk away, to actually for me to acknowledge that what yeah. you said was true? Yeah, but I also think that um, I had to wait until I knew that you were well past um, the first stages of survival sobriety. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that definitely came later because I also... Ooh, that's a good term, survival sobriety. Thank you. Um, I had to wait until I knew that your mind was in a place, that you wouldn't beat yourself up about it, that you could understand it was the alcohol, 
but that you also were willing to sit and listen to the pain and that you could carry and own some of that. There ha- there was like a turning point when I could like sense that you would be empathetic. Because just saying that you want to hear, you know, the resentment, but if you're not willing to own it and carry it, yeah, then that's not going to work. And yeah. I know that sometimes people try to rush into those. Um, I think they're called amendments or making amends. Amends, yeah. <laughs> but it's deeper and more intense than that. And it has to come later. I think it also has to come from a place when there is there's enough time passed and separation from it. And you're hopefully, you as the loved one are working on yourself where you can, like, explain it and, and not get mad about mm-hmm. it. You might get sad and cry. Or it might depress you thinking about it. But you're not mad and you're not living the madness and the anger again. Yeah. And the only thing, I mean, you just said it, you brought it up, that there is a requirement for time to have passed. Time in sobriety, time out of the out of the fire, out of the cauldron. Because I, I think we tried to talk about resentments fairly early on, and we had to go back and revisit it, like, you know, a couple of years later, because I just wasn't, I was still mad about it. Mm-hmm. Well... You, you, we always encourage people not to beat themselves up about lowering their defense mechanisms right away. You can't. You don't know if your alcoholic's going to relapse or not. You don't know how long term their sobriety is going to be. So you've got to keep the the walls there that you built to protect yourself. But when the walls are up, anger I think is the predominant emotion, and you can't you can't start to work through the the resentments in a healthy way as long as the walls are up and the anger is still there. So the time, I mean, again, I think there's a ton more consistency on the side of the loved one as far as how the loved one heals. But there there still is no way to rush it. It's still a long, long process. It takes a lot of time. And what's really interesting for you and I now, now that we know you know, details and we know a lot about the stories of people where the drinker has been sober for a year or two or more. It's very interesting to see that that doesn't just automatically make things right. Mm -hmm. Besides the resentments, there are issues like trust and trust is a requirement for intimacy and learning to trust someone again who has broken your trust takes a long time. And then eventually that leading to being able to be intimate with that person. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about intimacy and they're different and and we don't need to go any further describing that. But feeling that connection, it takes a long time. It isn't a matter of, look, I'm sober. Yeehaw. Look, I lost 10 pounds and uh, I'm a better dad now. Woo. It's it's time. It just takes time. And, and, And not just in our case, but in other cases, we know people that are like, man, I just can't believe all the work that my husband has done and gone through, and I still don't feel good about him. Mm-hmm. It just takes time. There, I'm four years sober, and there, there are, you know, kinks in that armor for us too. There are things that you still don't feel good about, and that's that's you know, from my perspective, that's fine because I understand 
how this healing works. And I understand that I was a heavy drinker for 25 years and I can't expect, you know, four years is a long time, but it's not 25 years. And I'm not saying it's going to take 25 years, but it's not six months. It's not a year. It's longer than that. That's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to hear because when you're in pain and then you get on the road to recovery, you you just want to be recovered. You don't want to be on the road to recovery. You want to be fixed. And I believe you get there. I don't believe recovery is a permanent state. Like, for instance, I don't believe I'll ever drink again. I don't believe I need to spend a lot of time thinking about drinking anymore. I think I'm sober for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go into. So I, I, if somebody asks me, yes, I'm a recovered alcoholic, not an in recovery alcoholic. I believe you can get there. But when it comes to our relationship, we're not quite there yet. And, but that doesn't make me sad. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying this part of the, the journey. I hate the word journey, but I'm enjoying this part of the journey because it's pretty good. And we got most of it fixed and we're just working on some details. Yeah, I mean, stuff that we never even knew were problems because we had alcohol introduced so early in our relationship that we have to, like, have a new relationship. You know, in okay. a way, this is this has been a blessing. People say that, that have been through it. Laura McCowan, who I referenced earlier, she titled her book, We Are the Luckiest, because we get to recognize things that if you haven't had an addiction issue, you just never would have thought about. And we have rejected the word recovery. Our friend Jane, who was on an earlier podcast, coined the phrase discovery instead of recovery for that very reason. We're going to someplace we've never been before. It's an enlightenment. It's it's someplace better than we were before or that we had access to before. So that's why I'm not depressed about the fact that we that our relationship isn't perfect. It'll never be perfect, but our relationship isn't as good as it's going to get because... We're growing to something new, mm-hmm. something new and different and better. And if we didn't have all this turmoil to look back on, I don't think we'd appreciate where we are now. Mm-hmm. So if you're in it, if you're on the road back up, you did the what goes down and now you're the on the must come back up stage of it, wherever you are in the process, give yourself some grace, <laughs> give yourself some time because this stuff just takes time. It all takes time. Nothing's fast about it. And we thank you for listening and hope you'll keep listening. And we'll keep, you know, sharing everything we know about the process to hopefully help some people get out of the pit maybe a little smoother than how it worked for you and I. Yep, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, for my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis, and we want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Untoxicated Podcast.